Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Jason Stein. Jason, can you introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, Grant. My name is Jason Stein. I'm an assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm in the Department of Genetics and in the Neuroscience Center, and I've been here for just a little under five years. Fantastic. So tenure review is coming up soon. It is. <laughs> Good time. <laughs> Submit my materials in February is what I'm going to do. Fantastic. So what's your research program about? Um, so my research is to try to understand how genetic variation that's present in human populations influences brain development and brain structure, and then leads to risk for neuropsychiatric disorders like autism and schizophrenia. So we have several model systems that we use to study this. The major thing that we do is using uh, human neural stem cells. So we have a population of human neural stem cells each of which is genetically diverse. And then we try to see how genetic variation within our population is associated with differences in the development of these, uh, in, the, in the differentiation of these neural progenitors. What have you found? Oh, so what have we found in that? So we recently put some preprints up uh, on the bioarchive and- um, Oh, and, and Grace can link those on the transcript. Oh, nice, yeah, yeah. Yeah, link them up. Get that, uh, what's that rating system? <laughs> the alt metric. Yeah, you got to get that alt metric up. Um, uh, so what have we found? So we found that um, there's many sites in the genome where genetic variation influences uh, chromatin accessibility and gene expression. So chromatin accessibility is a measure of uh, the function in the non-coding genome probably largely due to differences in transcription factor binding. So, um, so the genome is more open and accessible in certain regions of the non-coding genome, and that allows transcription factors to bind. So genetic variation within those open regions can impact transcription factor binding and then lead to differences in chromatin accessibility. We found you know, many thousands of different sites where genetic variation affects chromatin accessibility and interestingly, they're very cell type specific. So we did we did our study in two different cell types, progenitors and their differentiated neuronal progeny. And if you do uh, a chromatin accessibility QTL, so you find genetic variation affecting chromatin accessibility, they're like very few are shared between neurons and progenitors. But if you do expression like eQTLs, there's much more that are shared between um, genetic variation affecting uh, gene expression between two cell types. So we thought that was really interesting. It may, you know, you may have more cell type specificity for chromatin accessibility than you do for gene expression. That is weird. Why do you think that is? So um, you don't totally know. So these are just hypotheses. But speculation is speculation. good. That, that's why you go on a podcast. You can yeah. speculate. Right? You can uh, say whatever you want, and no one cares, right? Um, no reviewers will reject this. <laughs> so. This is inspired a lot by the work of uh, Dan Gaffney. He, he had a, a paper in Nature Genetics, and the basic hypothesis of this paper was, and I think well demonstrated in this paper, was that if you have genetic variation, it can impact chromatin accessibility because it'll impact like different transcription factors binding to a certain region. But only in the presence of other like sort of helpful transcription factors are you actually getting an effect on transcription. So say in one cell type that that other transcription factor is not expressed, 
well, then you can still have an effect on chromatin accessibility, but you wouldn't have an effect on, on gene expression. So this sort of like stimulus dependence of EQTLs may not be there for CAQTLs or maybe less so for CAQTLs. And that's kind of the hypothesis that we're going with. We haven't really demonstrated it though, because you, you kind of have to do a lot of chip seek to demonstrate that. And that's expensive and very hard as, we, <laughs> as we're trying to find out. Yeah. So what do you envision as the ultimate uh, practical application of, of this broad line of work? Yeah, so I was on a paper with a colleague who's just down the hallway, um, Mark Zilka. And uh, this paper was fo focusing on Angelman syndrome. And Angelman syndrome is like, you know, a one variant or like variant of large effects mutation, which creates like a big change in, in development and, and behavioral changes. And through Mark's work for like 10 years, they've found, and, and other people's work too, they found that like a molecular mechanism where, whereby you actually get decreased expression of UBE3A in the paternal chromosome. And that's um, the, the basics of Angelman syndrome. And I'm not the best person to explain this, but I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm on a podcast, so I'm just going to go for it. The basis of Angelman syndrome is that, you know, usually you, it's an imprinted uh, locus in UBE3A in neurons. You usually get expression just from the maternal allele uh, in neurons. Um, but if you have a mutation in the maternal allele in neurons, then you have no expression of this UBE3A in neurons. Okay, so that's bad, and that leads to Angelman syndrome. So why is the paternal allele not expressed? Well, his work over the last 10 years has found a molecular mechanism. So they found this long non-coding RNA that seems to silence the paternal allele. So his hypothesis, let's turn on the paternal allele. And they did this CRISPR screen, found out like a region of the genome that you can target that uh, decreases that link RNA, that long non-coding RNA, and increases the expression of the paternal allele. So now you have some expression of UV3A. Okay, cool. So you went from molecular mechanism, understanding the molecular mechanism took 10 years, like a long time. Uh, so you, you went from mutation, understanding molecular mechanism, and now with this CRISPR uh, design, they have a, an actual treatment and it works in uh, mice and human cells. It hasn't worked in humans, right? So it's not like ready to go, but you know, it's, it's getting there. And so my kind of feeling on this is, is the same way. So if we understand how genetic variation creates risk for psychiatric diseases, then we can begin to, to say, okay, so we know the genetic variation and, and there's a lot of consortia that are doing this, like psychiatric genetic consortia, that are creating risk for psychiatric diseases. Then if we can understand what the mechanism is, that's where like these CAQTL type of papers come in. And then we can sort of start to develop treatments uh, for, for the diseases. Now, it's different from Mark's work to, to this, to like the work that we're doing, because that's one variation of very large effect. And, and the stuff that we're working on is polygenic effects, each of which are very small. But still, I have hope that if we can target some of these pathways, maybe multiple of these pathways, that it can lead to some alleviation of symptoms. So that's kind of like what I envision. Obviously, it hasn't been done yet. So just because <laughs> I envision it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. But that sort of pathway from finding a genetic variation, understanding the mechanism, developing a treatment is like something I'm hopeful for. Nice. Well, what do you think is the most exciting 
area of work in biomedical research today? What do you think is the most promising? Oh, that's that's a good question. I think this like tech development stuff in the biomedical world is really exciting. And tech development, not in like a computer way, but in like a biological way, like creating biological systems to solve scientific problems. So, you know, one of them being like gene therapy approaches. If you can actually make a virus that contains gene editing proteins that target your gene of interest and can have some functional effect, that's awesome. That's really amazing. I think some other work too, like, you know, work like Jay Shanduri, this, this is that it doesn't have an immediate practical outcome, but work that they're doing is trying to sort of make mutations or make recordings of cells as they perform some biological process. So they're, for example, taking a cell as it's an embryo and then making a mutation sort of every time it divides. And then every time that divides, then you can sort of create a lineage trajectory of how one cell forms many other progenitor cells, which form many other progenitor cells, which then led to the formation of an entire organism. If you can take that same sort of idea and then move it to measuring each time a cell does something. So for example, fires an action potential, like George Church has proposed this as sort of like a, he calls it a ticker tape recording of, of action potentials, or you can record gene expression through development. I think those sort of like you're developing technology to perform longitudinal recordings of biological processes. I think that's going to be like amazing. Like at this at the single cell resolution, that'll be really cool. Because once you have once you have a ticker tape, you can sort of fast forward that ticker tape and sort of move cells quicker through a biological process or um, develop cells quicker, which I think will be really really important. Cool. So Grace here is a UNC senior just getting kind of started with her career. If you were in, in her position, deciding, you know, what, what area of work and laboratory and so on to, to start, start in, and, you know, 2021, 2022, what would you do? Yeah, I'd, I'd go, well, I guess, can I, can I ask Grace first? What are you interested? What do you like doing? Because that's, you know, that's kind of the most important. Yeah, I um, work in the lab of Dr. Ian Carroll, and I work with the microbiome, which I've been obsessed with since probably junior year of high school. Yeah, I definitely do that in the future. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, I think the most important thing is what do the work that you're passionate about, because if you're going to go into graduate school, or you're going to start, you know, start being maybe a technician after undergrad, that's what I did. And then, then go to graduate school. And then go to postdoc and you know sort of walk your way along the academic path it gets super frustrating at certain moments because science is difficult and the experiments don't necessarily turn out as you expect them to do and so what gets you through that is like actually caring about what you're doing the most important thing is that you really care and that in those sort of low lows that you're gonna have no matter what field you go into that you're gonna be like you know, I'm doing this for a reason. This sucks, but like, I'm just going to keep working at it. I think that's kind of the most, the most important thing. Obviously, I think towards Grant's question, he wants like, what do I think are important skills and things like, you know, having bioinformatics skills, especially for microbiome work is going to like make your life so much better and easier because instead of just 
doing an experiment and handing it off to somebody else, which I think is what grants organization allows people to do. Like it allows you to do both of those things and having the ability to do to, to do both of those simultaneously, like really gives you a lot of skill sets that'll be super valuable because you'll know, like you did the experiment, you know, like, hey, I isolated this sample. Something was weird with this. I don't know the concentration was low. The quality control metrics didn't look right. And then you see it in the data and you're like, hey, like this isn't right. This is an outlier. I know why this is an outlier. So and then you can throw that out. But if you're only doing one of those, like you're only doing, hey, I'm only going to um, do the experiment or I'm only going to do the bioinformatics, it becomes more difficult because then you got to go back to the guy who did the experiment. You go be like, do you remember anything weird about the sample? <laughs> and they may or may not remember. Or That's a good segue to our next topic. Can you maybe tell us a bit about your path? Uh, add some color. Some um, color. You know, start start Dayton, Ohio. <laughs> what, what, what motivated you? What surprises did you find at, at different stages of your career? What do you maybe wish you had done differently? So, yeah. So I was uh, born and raised in Dayton, Ohio, the birthplace of aviation, where the Grant Belgard, if, if you didn't know, for all those podcast listeners, the T stands for the Grant Belgard. So where the Grant Belgard was also stationed for a little while. I went to high school at a public school. There were some pretty good science teachers that I had when I was in high school. Um, Mr. Petruzio and Mr. Martin, if they're listening, shout out. <laughs> you could send them the transcript after. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> if I can even remember how to spell Mr. Petruzio's name, which I 100% do not do not remember. You know, so they, they were good. They were inspirational um, and, uh, you know, helped guide me along the path. When I went into college, I went to Northwestern. I studied at this program called uh, the Integrated Science Program. And this was kind of an amazing place. Like we were somewhat segregated from the rest of the Northwestern population, which was kind of weird, but actually kind of good because we had our own little community. So we had the Integrated Science Program, the ISP house, which was this like little somewhat crappy house that was like- Sounds like a real party house. Yeah, there were parties there. So yeah, so, but you know, people would study there, they would hang out there, we'd have parties there, we would have our classes there. So it became kind of like, it was like your little community. It was only like, I don't remember, like 20 people, something like that. Coming from Dayton, you know, we had very smart people that were at the high school, but like there were some like really brilliant people in this ISP program. And it was cool to just be around these people and interact with these people and like have the attention of the teachers too, who were teaching these very small classes um, to, to us. So I, I liked it a lot and enjoyed the, the classes. One of the most useful thing was they, they had this, I forget the name of the class, but they, they taught us basic computer programming skills like Unix, some Perl, I don't think R was even like a big thing back then. So we didn't learn R, but like a little bit of Python and things. And that was just like very, very useful because uh, that has helped me, I think in the future so much because I had those, like I had like a little bit of computational skills. So when I was there, I, I did research, but I did research in physics. So I was, uh, I worked at Fermi lab, um, which my friends called Fermi camp, which was a very weird, but kind of amazing place. So if you've ever been, it's in like outside of Chicago in uh, Batavia, Illinois, and they have these roaming buffalo 
that are just sort of like around on this large cut area. And underneath there's a particle accelerator, which is then the largest particle accelerator in the world, like before, before CERN. And, um, you know, they, they shot particles at each other and then they got a whole bunch of data and they needed some way to like visualize that data. And to be honest, I had no idea what I was doing, but they were like, can you program like making a website to make all these graphs? And I was like, cool, sure. So I worked on that and I didn't probably do a great job, but I, um, but they, you know, they seemed to want me and to keep me around. So that was, that was good. That was, that was really good. So then after that, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I did all kinds of stuff. I took the LSAT, the GRE, the MCAT, because I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know what I was. You were really undecided. Yeah, I was really undecided. And then um, I ended up taking, uh, applying to a position at NIH and uh, working in the intramural program there, like at, in Bethesda, for two years under Andreas Meyer Lindenberg. And we would scan people with schizophrenia uh, like do MRI scans of people with schizophrenia and their siblings, and then analyze the data as well. Was, was that on main campus? Yeah, it was on the main campus, Building 10. Yeah. Um, and it was a great experience. There was, again, like a really good environment there. Like there was a whole bunch of people right out of college that were interested in science, good people, friends and stuff that were all doing, working there at the same time. We were called ERDAs, which is Intramural Research Training Awards. Yeah, so you, you were... Weren't you in Erda, Grant? Uh, I was in the the GPP. So in grad school, I was flying back and forth between Oxford and NIH. Nice. But I was at uh, an offsite location cool. uh, around Twinbrook, uh, where the uh, intramural sequencing facility was. Oh, cool! So it was kind of the cutting edge of the genome technology branch. Oh, nice! Very cool. Twinbrook. So that's not too far, but it's like just not on the campus, on the main campus. Yeah, it's on the red line, so it's close enough. Nice. You didn't have to fight as bad traffic. What year were you? Did we overlap? What years were you there? 2008 through 2012, but not really full time except 2010 through 2012. Oh. But I, I would pop back and forth for like a week at a time. Okay, cool. We probably did just like a tiny bit then. Okay, yeah. So I scanned people with uh, psychiatric disorders. Thought it was really interesting. My my computational skills were like super valuable to to those people. They found them valuable. You know, one thing I really hated was calling subjects. Like a big part of our job was recruitment. So which means that you get on the phone and you say, "Hi, my name's Jason. I'm calling from the NIMH. Would you like?" Did you start robocall spamming them? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't make that. <laughs> that I should have made. That would have made everyone's life easier. So we had those assignments, recruitment assignments, scanning assignments, and then we would also like do analysis. And I just like wrote scripts to make everyone else's analysis easier. And then I was like, if I do this, will you call my subjects? And they're like, sure. So, uh, so that was great because I really hated doing that. Motivation. Yeah. Yeah. Then, uh, during that, so I worked for, uh, Andreas Meyer Lindenberg, who's now in Germany, but then was at NIMH. And he told me um, that I should work with Paul Thompson at UCLA for graduate school. And so basically I, I applied several places for graduate school, but I, I emailed Paul beforehand. And I was like, hey, Andreas told me I should work with you. Can I work with you? <laughs> and then he called me and basically said like, sure, you can work with me. So weather had nothing to do with it? No, actually I was, I was pretty anti LA at the beginning. You know, LA has a bad rap. 
You're like the anti-Neil. Yeah. <laughs> Neil is the yeah, totally the opposite. I think growing up in West Virginia, Neil must have uh, really hated it. So yeah, so I was not not into LA and I was like, oh, this this place is lame, but you know, whatever. The the neuroscience is supposed to be good. But I eventually grew to to really appreciate LA. There's a lot of good things there, especially the hiking is like pretty pretty amazing there. And so close to the city. And did the weather grow on you? I mean, would you have considered taking a position in Chicago afterwards? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. I like Chicago, actually. I like, I, I don't mind the Chicago weather. And I very much appreciate changes in seasons. Like here in North Carolina, like it's beautiful. Like I love the springtime, which is you don't get. Yeah. <laughs> Grace is agreeing. The springtime here is amazing. Like you just get blooming of everything after the winter. It's just such a contrast. So beautiful. So nice. Yeah. Florida's just one big hot uh, hurricane season. <laughs> it's very muggy down there. Yeah. So I worked with Paul Thompson. Tell, tell us a little bit about Paul Thompson. Paul Thompson is an interesting human. Uh, he is like a very brilliant man. Very, very smart in mainly math and like figuring out like topologies of brain structures. He, he really led, like he, he did really an amazing job at that. And he is highly motivated to publish papers. And you can see from his publication record, like he has just thousands, I think. He's in the thousands of papers. So that was interesting. His lab environment was also kind of weird in the sense that we didn't have lab meetings. There was no room. He he had like he was getting grants like crazy and recruiting many students and postdocs, and we were all shoved into his office. There's like eight people maybe in his office, and I remember I was sitting on one side of a desk, and then on the other side of a desk there was some uh, somebody else like just facing me. Now that you think with COVID protocols, this is like <laughs> you're just like breathing into the face of someone else. It was just it was crazy. It was a good experience because mainly because Paul had access to so much data. And he really needed people that were that were willing to like analyze that data. So yeah, so he was really looking for people to analyze that data. And this was also at the time that GWAS was sort of starting. Like I started grad school, I think in 2007. In 2007 was sort of like one of the first welcome GWAS. There was a lot of candidate gene studies, which are, for those who don't know, this sort of old school thing you don't do now, uh, um, versions of association studies. All BS. All B well, they turned out to be, yeah, none of it has ever replicated. I would, I would say that. The need for doing GWAS and large consortia was clearly there, but those didn't really exist yet for brain structure traits, like for things you can measure with MRI. That's, that's basically what I got involved in. So um, Paul met with um, this guy, Nick Martin from Australia, who was one of our collaborators over dinner, they basically said like, hey, we should form a consortium. And then I was basically the one to lead that consortium, which eventually we called the Enigma Consortium Enhancing Neuroimaging Genetics Through Meta-Analysis. You came up with the acronym. Paul came up with the acronym, which, you know, like is a great acronym, but also the wrong side. You know, like if you think about it, like he keeps saying it's like the uh, the code breaking for, for the brain, which is great. I, I kind of like that. But it's the, it's the wrong side. It's the Nazi side that came up with the, like, we should call it like Bletchley or something, you know, <laughs> something more, more positive, but unfortunately we're up with Enigma. But anyway, it's, I mean, nobody remembers that. So I think it's, it's kind of great. Nobody knows history. Nobody knows history. <laughs> it's a great name. 
So, uh, so yeah, so I ended up like uh, leading this consortium along with people from Australia, Sarah Medland, people from Holland, and we would, they would all fly to, to LA and we would like do all of the stuff together. It was a good experience because we were one of two consortia that were doing this at, at the time. So yeah, and we found, we found a bunch of genetic associations to brain structure. And then, and, and then, you know, I, I finished with Paul, although I didn't really finish, I was still working with Paul on the, all these Enigma projects, but I, I was looking for a postdoc and I was trying to find a postdoc that, that I could do not just find genetic variants associated with different traits, but, uh, what to do next. And so I read some papers online about like what to do next. And like, it seemed like things were converging towards like using stem cells to model variants. And I was like, okay, cool. I want to use stem cells to model variants. I have zero experience in wet lab biology. I don't know how to hold a pipette. I don't know how to run a Western blot. How, how can I do this? I need somebody who values computational experience and will allow me in a postdoc to like transition a little bit and learn some new things. And so I emailed Dan because... And what is Dan's full name? Dan Geshwind, Dr. Daniel Geshwind. I'm trying to get him on. He said oh, he nice. had to listen to a few first. <laughs> Did he? That's funny. So yeah, maybe he'll listen to this. So he wrote a nature paper with Jenna Kanapka. It was basically about like hypothesis discovery research. Instead of all these like classic wet lab scientists who were poo-pooing like, oh, you're just on a fishing expedition. Everything, all bioinformatics work is a fishing expedition, which was like pretty prominent back in 2011. That's what they would say. He was like, okay, there's hypothesis generating research and that's what we do. And we generate new hypotheses, and then we can like validate those hypotheses, test these hypotheses with model systems. And I was like, cool, that's what, I like that. That makes sense. You're not poo-pooing all of the giant amount of work that all of this discovery science is doing. Um, so then I tried to apply to his lab and I emailed him once, no response. I emailed him, I think a second time, I maybe got a response. I don't really remember, but like, like three letters. Yeah. It never worked. Then the third time I got, kind of, I was like, Dan, do you like want to meet me or not kind of thing? And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, like that's fine. And then we talked and I think this was when he was in London, maybe at the Institute of Psychiatry. And so it was very difficult to get an appointment with him, but eventually I got an appointment with him. He allowed me to be a postdoc and, um, and yeah, and that is where I met the Grant Belgard. So tell us about Dan. Dan is, I don't know. What do you want to know about Dan? Dan's, he's a very brilliant man. He, uh, has just a million projects running simultaneously. Somehow he knows and can provide useful insight to each of those different projects. He also promised me that I could meet Bob Dylan if I got a paper in a fancy journal. And that has not happened. His neighbor, Bob Dylan. So I'm still waiting for that. And I hope that that comes soon. You're on the spot, Dan. Yeah, I would really like to meet <laughs> Bob Dylan. I think that that would be, other than meeting Grant, would be really a defining feature of my life. <laughs> so what did you do in Dan's lab? So um, in Dan's lab, I worked with this other postdoc named Luis, who is now an assistant professor at UCLA. And Luis and I formed a team, which we called Team Middle Earth, <laughs> because we had the Middle Bay and we're both nerds. And we uh, basically did everything together. So Luis taught me, he's, Luis is like a very brilliant 
molecular and cell biologist. He was trained at Harvard. He's like the most careful scientist you will ever meet. And he was know nothing about bioinformatics and is very curious about bioinformatics. And I knew nothing about wet lab biology and he knew everything. And so uh, he taught me everything I know about wet lab biology. And then I taught him a little bit about bioinformatics and uh, how to code. And I think mainly like how to interpret what the possible confounds are for bioinformatics experiments and stuff. That combination was amazing. I can't speak for him, but really helped me out. Like really helped me develop into a much, much, much better scientist because now I have like more skill sets. I'm not just analyzing other people's data. We can generate our own data in the lab. That was really great. So Luis and I worked on yeah, developing human brain tissue. We would like acquire that. And then we studied multiple aspects of that. How well stem cells model the actual development of the in vivo brain. And then we, we also studied how uh, crumbs and accessibility uh, changes during neural development and developing human brain. We use those data sets. I feel like everyone does. You do use those data sets? Yeah. Oh, nice. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. That's cool. Um, yeah. So, yeah, Luis is great. You should have Luis on. I bet he'll be yeah. awesome. I've, I like Luis's insights to, to anything. Anytime I try to do something new, I always ask Luis. I was like, do you think this is a good idea? <laughs> and whatever he says, then I'll like... If he thinks it's a good idea, then I'll do it. If he thinks it's a bad idea, then I'm... It's, it's usually a bad idea. So. Cool. So so what's the, the wet versus dry lab balance in, in your lab now? So I'd say it's, it's pretty 50-50 and leading a little more wet now. So it was leaning a little more dry before, um, but now we have... So, you know, the initial experiments in our lab were growing these 100 different stem cell lines that I, we generated, Luis and I generated in Dan's lab, and then uh, I shipped here to UNC. And then we ran these QTL studies uh, here, and now we have like a lot of data. So we have a lot of hypotheses because you can get co-localizations between your EQTL, CAQTL with GWAS data. Okay, so now you have, we have both a system for discovery and an experimentally modifiable system to see what the effects are and why those effects. So now we're in that stage where we analyze a whole lot of data and then we have all these different experimental hypotheses. So now we need to like do all the validation for those experimental hypotheses. Yeah, so I've been really fortunate to get students who are interested in both sides that were willing to come with me, even though like I'm not the best wet lab biologist in the world, but they, you know, I still have like decent sort of resources. They don't know any better. They don't know any better. That's, that's, <laughs> that is the definite truth. I mean, yeah, I think back to when, when I was a, a student, I mean, I had no clue what I was doing. It was, right. it was just pure luck. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I'm definitely taking advantage of that. You know, the main thing is being nice to people. I think if you're nice to people and like try to be a good mentor, then that word gets around that like, Hey, this guy's like not a jerk, you know, and that he like cares about science. And so other people hear that from the other grad students and they're like, Oh, Maybe I want to work with this guy who's not a jerk. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I, I think we're like 60, 40 now. I mean, it's still pretty, pretty heavy for dry lab stuff, but a lot of even the bioinformatics students are doing wet lab experiments now to, to try to validate their hypotheses. Nice. Yeah. So tell us about getting started. What were your biggest surprises? Obviously you would have been as well prepared as anyone going into it, but what weren't you expecting? 
Yeah, there's, I mean, I think how long it takes to do anything was like a, a big, <laughs> a big surprise and like kind of a disappointment. Also, how lonely it is at the beginning, <laughs> because first of all, like imposter syndrome, like the imposter syndrome is just like overwhelming when you come in and you have an empty lab that's like a little bit dirty and you have your like office space and you have nothing like no people no like experiments going no data you're just it's just you and it's like awful <laughs> i think when you when you just like start out that first week so the the process of building the lab getting uh, equipment getting people takes a very very long time especially because you want to hire the right people you want to make that lab environment good so people actually enjoy working there you want to like have very competent people who have skill sets that are complementary and not identical to your skill sets. And the major recruitment that you get is graduate students who have a defined schedule of being able to join your lab. So you can only get graduate students on the rotation schedule and then they join your lab. So all of that leads to like huge delays in the ability to like make a functional lab with, with enough people and enough equipment and enough whatever experiments are to do anything. So you can have all these ideas, but you can't like do anything at the beginning. So, so that that process was like a six month process, I think, to get to get something. And you know, the, the people here were they were really nice and they also like explained this to me. They're like, oh, it took me six months to run my first gel or something like that. And I was like, oh thank goodness. That <laughs> that makes me feel much better when you when you hear that when somebody else says that. Cool. I mean, that took a while and especially the first project we have, this this QTL project, which was my R00 project, like it took a long time to get running. But like once it's once it finished and was running, and I had a great technician to help me out with that. Now we have all this data that allowed me to get more grants. And now the students and stuff, I feel like I don't have to be here. You know, I mean, I still have to be here, but like they're rolling and they're smarter than me and they can just do it. You know what I mean? I'm just sort of like providing advice. And it's not quite at the point where Dan's lab is like a super mature lab, where he has like many postdocs who have like really, really uh, strong experience. Like I have very grad student heavy lab, people still need to be trained and stuff like that. But it is it is much more to that point than it was five, five years ago. Um, yeah, nice. which feels good. <laughs> that feels good. So going back to that, that startup phase, uh, would you ever consider starting a company? You know, I'd consider it, but I don't. I don't know what I have to offer yet. <laughs> Be Grant Belgard. Like I, I feel like my end goal uh, would would be wanting to make some sort of therapeutic. That would be an ideal for me, and I don't have that yet. Like my research hasn't led to that yet. So if I ever do have something where I feel like I have something to offer that I can sell that other people would want to buy that I think can help the world, then then yes, I want to do that. But right now, I don't have that. I don't have that, that thing. So. Yeah, it's interesting these days. Uh, the, the virtual biotech model is in vogue. So it, it's quite common for a very small company, one, two, three, four people, to develop an asset and essentially get it to the stage where it's ready for later stage clinical trials um, and and have pretty much all the work for it outsourced. And so really the core team is more 
uh, finding organizations for that, interpreting the data, mm. raising money, and, and so on uh, as the, the asset progresses. It's interesting. So, and, and, and yeah, there are even organizations today that, that do that with pretty complex biologics, so, you know, gene therapies and things like this. Hmm. So it could happen one day, maybe Jason Stein. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, maybe, I, I don't know, like that, that sort of idea, um, you know, it's, it's quite different than, than the way academia works is the sort of like where you farm out the experiments to other people and you're mainly, so in that case, you're mainly doing like either bioinformatics or just, just even interpretation of like the experimental outcomes. Like, how does that interpretation, deciding what to do next? You know, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of coordination that, that has to happen and, and quickly. And, and it's very interdisciplinary, right? So you're working not even primarily with bioinformaticians. I mean, you're, you're working with chemists, with biologists, with biostatisticians, with clinicians. Mm. So it's, it, you have to draw on a lot of different skill sets. Yeah. That's cool. For me, well, first, I don't know anything about business. Like, you, you know a lot about business, but I, I really, I don't know how to do that. But like, I, I feel like the essential thing of a business is that you need to have something that you're going to sell to other people that they want to buy. And so like, right now, I'm, I feel like I have research, I have research ideas, I have ability to do research, I have people, I have like resources that I can do right now. I hope that that research leads to me being able to have something that someone else wants to buy and that would be helpful to the world. Like immediately, I don't see it. Like I don't, I don't have that right now. So. Mm -hmm. I could always spin something out. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Yeah. I mean, like, for example, that, like I talked about the uh, Angelman syndrome gene therapy treatment. That's a thing where it took 10 years. He has something that's like a gene therapy in mouse in uh, human cell lines. I can definitely see that moving towards company or like, you know, even farming it out to other people to do experiments because there's a very clear, like, this is what you would do. But from my, from my own, you know, I participated in that, but I'm not like leading that. So um, from my own research, like I'm not, I don't really have that yet. So I hope one day to get it. And if I do, it would be great to either form a company or work with somebody who does it. Sweet. So 30, 40 years from now, what would you like to have done? Like in my career? Yeah. I think, or actually more broadly. I think about this a decent amount. So I think first is just like be remembered as a decent human to other humans. <laughs> I feel like, especially now with political situations, that like simple kindergarten thing is like totally forgotten and is totally the most critical thing for a functioning society and also just <laughs> just the most basic thing, like treat other people with respect. Um, I think in terms of career aspects, if I could be a part of developing treatment for psychiatric disorders, which right now don't have treatments like schizophrenia, I mean, they have treatments, but they're not like good. Um, and a lot of people just basically don't do well. And, you know, there, there's nothing really for these people. Like they're, they're homeless, they're in state hospitals. Uh, it's a huge burden on society and, and people are just suffering. And there's so much good neuroscience that's happening right now. So much good genetics that like, I feel optimistic 
about what could happen for these people. And so if I can help contribute to that, I feel like that would that would be amazing, like an amazing cherry on top of being a nice person <laughs> in, in my career. Very nice. How do you like uh, UNC? I like UNC. UNC is a good place. A lot of a lot of nice people. Not a lot of like ego, and I mean, there's still some ego, you know. Science is, uh, has that for sure, but like people work together really well. Everybody's been really supportive from like uh, a young assistant professor thing, so that's been great. You know, there's there's some things that uh, administrative things and things that that definitely could be corrected or made better, but I don't really want to be that administrator <laughs> to, to do that. And usually the, the way they have it here, and I'm sure in many places, is the more the, the squeaky wheel gets volunteered for, gets voluntold to, uh, to fix the problem. So, <laughs> so you're, you're limited in your squeaks based on how much you want to spend your time fixing the problem, which, you know, that, it kind of makes sense. Well, you know, you're getting someone who's passionate about it, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We only have time to do so much. And if you want to spend your time doing that research, then you spend your time doing that research and, you know, find alternative solutions to problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> the, the eco thing in science is pretty interesting. It's been pervasive uh, from even quite early days, you know, back going back to uh, Newton and Hooke and, and things like this, right? Um, egos have always been a bit of a, of a problem, right? I mean, for, for a lot of people, it's kind of, they are quite ego motivated yeah. more than anything else. Since, yeah. But not everyone, right? I mean, some people are just nerds and like doing it. Right. But uh, I'd say probably, I don't know, what's your sense of that? I, I would say probably more people are just nerds and like doing it. But <laughs> the ego thing is pretty common. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard. I can't say I'm immune to it. I feel like it's enriched in academia. No offense. Yeah, no. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right. There was there was like a paper written. It wasn't a paper. It was like a website where somebody sort of proposed a new model for academia. Basically, I'm supposed to form my own very small business where I get uh, I get people to work under my in my lab. I get grants from the federal government or um, foundations to support my work, and like I have my own business. And then Hei Jung, who whoever's next door, has her own business. And, you know, Mark Zilka has his own business. There is not this sort of like overarching effort, uh, like it's seen in like physics, for example, where we don't have our own business. Like we all work on the big problem and we all do our individual small part, small part for that. And like some organizations like Allen Institute, I think has done it pretty well. Like they work on giant problems that cost crazy amounts of money and they, uh, they have their each little person contributing to that. And then on the, on the other hand, you have the human brain project, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely examples where it didn't work, <laughs> didn't work well, but like ideal situation for me would be like, you know, I have Luis and me work really well together. If, if Luis and me could form our own lab where we're just like, we're two people to doing a lab, that would be cool. But like universities don't often do that. They don't recruit two people together. It's like, why, why not? We work so well together. Bring Middle Earth to UNC. Yeah, Middle Earth to UNC. <laughs> we got to get Celine to want to move to North Carolina. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think those things would be would be really cool, like to try to change something like that, or having very large projects. Like I know the Human Brain Project didn't work, but like 
if you have very large projects where you actually have like a very clear definable goal and steps that you want to get there where everybody just sort of like says i'm not gonna like try to like be the one who discovered it or whatever i'm just gonna i'm gonna be my part of the bigger entity um i mean that that that's basically uh what, what, what academics uh refer to as quote unquote industry right is it <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm not sure i believe that everyone's in the same boat rowing to the same you know towards the same goal well i feel like industry is you know, at its best at its best okay because i feel like industry is dominated by the pursuit to make money make your stockholders you know what is the what is the goal of any business increase stockholder wealth right well if you don't make anything uh that that's useful then right, you're not going to make any money right <laughs> right but that's like the essential problem like now with research like you don't we don't necessarily know if we're going to make anything you have to figure out what's wrong first and then you can make something with psychiatric illnesses you have to still figure out what's wrong first and, you, and then you make something you know, there's been a lot of drug development where you don't know what's wrong, just throw a lot of stuff at it, and then you you see minor therapeutic advantages. Well, a lot of big drugs have just been discovered uh, through pure serendipity with no known mechanism of action, right? I mean, a lot of the the big discoveries of the 50s and 60s um, right. that in many cases took a very long time to uh, to improve on. Right, yeah. and But they, they clearly, improvements are clearly needed. And there hasn't been much in a long, long time. So. Especially in psychiatry. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Cool. Well, we are at about time and we just need to upload. Okay, cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Jason. That was, it's very enjoyable. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the second edition. Is that right? Of the, the bio. Uh, is this episode four? Episode four. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, anyways, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Grant. Hopefully I didn't talk your ear off. No, it was great. Thanks, Jason.